All right, so it's wonderful to, to be back with you all. Uh, my name is Mike, and uh, myself, my wife Rachel, and my family, uh, we had, um, yeah, we've just gotten back from some really valuable time uh, in where we grew up in the state of California. We got to reconnect with relatives. Um, our kids got to play and get to know their cousins. Um, we had a couple of funerals to attend. Um, I, I went to some seminary core intensives, uh, was involved in a kind of a preaching training course uh, that I get to help out with. And uh, while I've been doing that, I've been doing my best to, uh, to wake up as early as I can on Sunday mornings and be able to watch what takes place here um, live for the whole Colossians series. I, I caught most of them live, and there was some that I, I, I went back and had to catch uh, later on. And let me just say, that's a tough act to follow. Colossians was, was a great series. I loved uh, listening in, uh, learning from uh, the elders, and also to John and Shane. Uh, thank you guys for faithfully teaching God's Word. Uh, thank you for showing us that because of the gospel, uh, we have access to all of Christ for all of life. And so, um, man, I'm shaking my boots up here having to follow that. Now, maybe you recall a couple of weeks ago, in Colossians chapter 3, uh, we heard what it meant to have all of Christ impact all of our lives. And that means that even some of the habits, some of the patterns, some of the practices, and some of the desires that, that we live with, they'll need to be discarded. Or they'll need to be transformed and exchanged for new patterns and new outlooks. Uh, maybe you recall this, these verses. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to each other, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator, from Colossians 3. When Kean Carroll taught this passage, uh, he mentioned that this section is called a vice list. I'm sure you remember that. Vice list. Um, that includes in many of the New Testament books, we have these lists of patterns and practices of the old way of life that we are to discard. And Kean said he's going to leave it to me to unpack it once I got home. <laughs> well, I'm home. <laughs> so let's get to work. <laughs> All right. So we have kind of the slide that uh, is kind of the title uh, for this, or um, it's a vice list, okay? So what is a vice? Well, a vice is a tool that's used for holding something down, for gripping tightly onto something and keeping an object within its grasp. 
You see there's a, a picture there of a, what's called a desktop vice uh, that maybe some of us have in our garages or sheds. Uh, some of us don't, and that's okay. Well, destructive sins and habits, well, they have been called vices as well. And, and maybe can you see the connection, even with those words? The connection, I think, is kind of obvious. There's a squeezing there's a retaining, there's a constriction that comes with these vices as well. They keep us stationary rather than progressing forward and growing. So in these seven weeks leading up to Easter and covering the, the season on the church calendar known as Lent, uh, we're going to be looking at seven vices. Some people have referred to these as the seven deadly sins. But we're not just going to be analyzing a particular sin, but we're going to be showing how the grace of God empowers us to deny that sin and lean into God's empowering grace. And so the series is titled, Sin's Curse, has lost its grip on me. And we're going to look into the freeing power of the gospel to live lives of virtue in light of these destructive vices. All right. Full disclosure. Some of you, some of you longtime members of Calvary Cork, maybe you're saying, hang on a second. In 2015, didn't we do a series through the seven deadly sins? And the answer is yes. Well done, those of you that have stuck around for seven years. We're doing it again. Here's why. Number one, our church has changed, right? We live in a transient city. A lot of people come in and come out. We've welcomed new believers. Uh, we've seen people move into the city for college or for industry and come and go. We have a high turnover in this church. So the church has changed. Also, you have changed, right? <laughs> and number three, I have changed. <laughs> I believe that um, even the, these, these passages, these themes have interwoven into my own life in a different way over these past seven years. And then also, maybe the fourth thing, I stopped believing a long time ago that anyone remembers anything that I say <laughs> beyond like Monday or Tuesday, okay? So, all right, let's pray. Lord, I certainly believe that your word has power. We believe that. That's why we're here. Uh, we know that your word has a transforming impact on us. And Father, I pray that a look into these vices that may have kept us stationary. Maybe some of us for seven years been stationary in the same place, never growing, always being drugged down. I pray that um, over this Sunday and uh, leading all the way up to Easter Sunday, that the anniversary of your conquering of death and sin and hell, I pray that you would be granting just like the foretaste of deliverance, Lord, that we just sang about. Um, would you free uh, women and men from the vices that have held them in place um, perhaps their whole lives. Uh, it's possible to have a, a saved soul 
but to have a life that is entangled and drugged down by many weights. Uh, Free us, Lord, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the first vice that we're going to be looking at, well, Audrey read it um, in James chapter uh, 3. There's a, a vice list there, and one of them is this. It says where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there'll be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Um, And somewhere it says envy in there. (laughs) Anyway, uh, bitter jealousy, I think, is, yeah, envy is what we're talking about. (laughs) Guys, guess how much sleep I got last night? None! None! No sleep! No sleep at all! So I'm going to stick to my notes, all right? So we're going to talk about envy. Here is what we're going to talk about. Envy defined. What exactly is envy? Envy described. What does envy look like, and where do we see it in Scripture? And then envy denied. How does God's grace empower us for change? So let's just talk first. What is envy? How is envy defined? Well, you can look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, and uh, Oxford defines it this way. It's a feeling of discontent and resentment that is aroused by another's good. That's That's a good start. I think there's more to say on the topic than simply that. Uh, From a Christian perspective, uh, Jerry Bridges, uh, in his book called Respectable Sins, he defines it this way. He says, envy is the painful and sometimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by somebody else. Someone else is doing well, and rather than us celebrating it, it actually causes us to be downcast. Someone described it as, it's the art of counting another fellow's blessings instead of counting your own blessings. Instead of rejoicing in the good that they have, you weep because you don't have that blessing. It's kind of a perversion of what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. Instead of us weeping with those who weep, and rejoicing with those who rejoice, envy causes us to weep because someone else rejoices and to rejoice when someone else is weeping. Uh, News Talk, uh, News Talk FM did a a segment on envy a while ago, and the guest, a criminologist by the name of John O'Keefe, he was asked to define envy in in purely secular terms. And he kind of hems and haws, and then he gets a little bit, um, he says, basically, another word, envy is basically another word for what all of us Irish people grew up calling begrudgery. He says, he goes on to say, Ireland is a nation of begrudgers. So whether you agree with him or not, I think it's worth considering. And it's something for you to discuss in your community groups. 
things can get spicy if you want to talk about if Ireland is a nation of begrudgers or not. Well, the dictionary uh, on my computer um, defines begrudgery this way. It actually defines it as a Hiberno-English word, resentment of any person who has achieved success or wealth. Finally, uh, Padraig O'Moran, a columnist for the Irish Times, he says, begrudgery is the assumption that there's only so much happiness to go around. And guess what? Others have too much, and I have too little. Begrudgers cannot accept that happiness of one person does not have to diminish the happiness of everyone else. I've heard this described elsewhere as tall poppy syndrome, um, that it's the poppy that grows the tallest, that's the one that must be cut down. Anyway, I've only lived here 18 and a half years, so I'm no expert, so I'll keep my cultural observations to myself. But whether John O'Keefe is correct or not, this is none of my business, and regardless of if you grew up here or if you're a blow-in like me, the question before us is not, is Ireland a nation of begrudgers? The question is this, am I an envious person? So what is envy? Envy is a sin. Uh, nearly every one of the vice lists that we see in the New Testament features envy in it. In Galatians 5, there's the famous collection of verses that we know as the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. And then immediately following that is another list called the deeds of the flesh. And in there, envy is there contrasted as the fruit of the Spirit, which bring life, and there is envy, the deeds of the flesh. In Romans chapter 1, verses 29 down to verse 32, there's another vice list, and it describes an envious person as evidence of them rejecting God's law and living as a law unto themselves. Uh, we have a slide for Titus chapter 3. It says that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating each other and being hated by others. And then Peter writes this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So again, there's, there's the case that's there. Uh, it, it, it rarely is neglected or left out of the vice lists of the New Testament. But here's another thing that you should know about envy. Did you know that envy brought Jesus to the cross? Now, of course, the theologians in the room are thinking, yes, that's true. All sin is what caused Jesus to go to the cross. And you're right, my bright theologians among us. But did you also know specifically that the sin of envy is what caused Jesus to be betrayed and to be brought up to Pontius Pilate and eventually that led to his execution. You see, in Matthew 27, 18, there is this conversation or this description of, of why Pontius Pilate is being presented 
with this man that he must bring judgment upon. And it says that he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So the religious leaders were envious of the crowds, of the power, of the authority in which Jesus was operating. And out of envy, that caused his crucifixion, humanly speaking. So those are some attempts to define envy. And and now I want to, to show a bit. So we have envy defined, and now we'll go to envy described. So we can find examples of envy all throughout the Bible. And you don't have to look very far to find it. Uh, You could start in the book of Genesis. And someone described Genesis as kind of the long story of a multi-generational dysfunctional family and God's faithfulness in the midst of all of their problems. We see Cain and Abel are two brothers whose relationship was ruined because of one's envy for the other. Um, Sarah is envious of Hagar's children. Hagar is envious of Sarah's affection. Rachel envies Leah. Joseph's 11 brothers are envious of his multicolored coat, but most of all, the affection of his father that that coat represents. And so all of Genesis is essentially envious family members not getting on. But why don't we turn to Genesis 4? And what we're going to do is we're going to see... The first act of violence recorded in scriptures. So I'll read verses 1 to 7. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offerings, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. So the Cain and Abel story is a story of envy. The Lord showed regard for Abel's offerings, but not to Cain's. We don't know how that display or that was made known, but something was evidently different about Abel's offering and Cain's. God asks why his countenance is fallen. The main point here is that there was some display of God's favor and blessing that Abel got that Cain did not get. And God, though, in his grace, goes to the downcast Cain, and he tells him that he'll be accepted if he, if he does well. He instructs him in the right way to act, and then he warns him against the wrong. Like, Cain is not, in this section, he's not cast away by God, but God comes searching for him to help get him on the right path. And, and we see that 
Cain is angry. We'll see this in the next verse, but he's not angry at God. Like, how could he be? Especially after God condescends and has this loving one-on-one chat with him about how to get right. He's angry, but he's not angry at God. He's angry at his brother Abel. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So he kills him. It's fratricide. It's brother killing brother. The first murder in the history of humanity. He is envious of God's pleasure. So he kills the one who has it. Proverbs 27 says this, Wrath is cruel, and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Here's another glimpse into a portrait of jealousy in 1 Samuel 18. You can turn there if you like. This is immediately following the famous victory of David over Goliath in the Valley of Elah. And verse 16 says this, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have by the kingdom? Look at verse 9. And Saul kept an eye on David from that day on. Saul is jealous of David's success. Not just that, but most of all his fame. Um, Saul was popular, Saul was highly esteemed and renowned by his community, but it destroyed him to know that people liked David a little bit more than they liked him. And this sent him spiraling into a self-destructive, ultimately suicidal quest to defame and to destroy David. Verse 9 Saul eyed David from that day on. This was his like main focus from here on out. It's been said that comparison is the thief of joy. Have you heard that? It's kind of a good Instagram quote. <laughs> um, I kind of like it. Comparison is the thief of joy. And, and here, Saul had a chance to be joyful. He's joyful that his army won a victory against the Philistines. Uh, He could have been joyful that Goliath is finally dead or that his citizens can now sleep safety without fear of Philistine invasion. But instead, Saul starts nursing a vindictive grudge. It's like a wound that keeps festering or it's a scab that he won't stop picking. How dare 
people like David more than me. And if you know the rest of the story, this becomes the all-consuming focus of the rest of his life. Proverbs 14.30 says, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. So when Saul or Cain or you or me give in to this bone-rotting sensation of envy, um, when we see others succeed or excel in an area where we aren't succeeding or excelling, it's very challenging. Uh, But usually, though, it's not just successful people out there. Uh, Usually, it has to do with proximity, two meters or less. You see, Cain and Abel, they were brothers. David and Saul, they were serving in the same army. And that's where that envy grew strongest. Um, When it's someone, I'll just speak personally, when it's somebody who's like um, near me or someone who's like me, when they achieve what I wish I was achieving, that's when I encounter the potential of envy. So I'll be honest, I am not envious at all of any of the Olympic athletes um, that we saw recently. You know, not the curling people or the whatever or the that's or the oopsie. I, I, I was like, whatever, you know. Cool. Good for them. You know, may they get all the sponsorships. You know, I hope that their life is, is great. Like, that is, like, totally outside of my realm. And I'm just like, yeah, you guys go for it. Yeah, get, kick the ball. That's good, you know. Swim through the water. Jump over the thing. Good for you, you know. Um, so I'm not envious of an Olympic athlete. But some of the athletes in this room, you are probably tempted to be envious of, like, a teammate who does just a little bit better than you on your team. That's where envy is. Or, you know, I'm not jealous or envious of a world-class neurosurgeon, but some of the medical students in our church um, might be envious of a classmate who just does a little bit better on the exams than they do. So I'm not envious of like famous musicians or engineers or, or athletes. To me, that's just a whole different category than I put myself in. Their success doesn't threaten my self-worth. In fact, I want engineers to succeed. (laughs) I want safe buildings everywhere. I want beautiful architecture. That's great. But Aristotle, who spoke of envy and these types of things, he points out that envy is always potter against potter, blacksmith against blacksmith. It's the people that are similar to us that succeed or advance in ways that we don't. Those are the most likely candidates for us to envy. So last Friday night, uh, not this coming one, but uh, whatever, how do you say it? A fortnight ago? Whatever. Eight days ago, nine days ago, um, I was uh, sitting around a table uh, with a group of of old friends and kind of buddies, and uh, we're catching up. It's been years since this group has been together in person, uh, talking about what's happened in our life since the last time we were together, da-da-da. And then, and then someone mentioned that they have a new book coming out. 
And I think, oh, okay. And then, and then someone else says, who's publishing it? Oh, well, so-and-so is publishing it. Oh, my book came out with, these, with this publishing house. And then someone else chimes in. Oh, well, the editors, I've worked with them before. They're really great. And as I look around the table, you know, most of these guys are, are around my age or a few years older. And uh, there's only two people sitting at that table who haven't published books. And as me and Clay Worrell, if you know Clay from Calvary Waterford, uh, he started, uh, and, and we just kind of like looked at each other and just kind of like gave this resigned sigh of like, we're the two chumps at the table, you know? We don't know what it's like to have an editor. I can't compare this with that. That's just not in our realm. So at that moment, so two Fridays back, like I had an opportunity to compare myself with like my more successful peers. And that comparison, it could have been the thief to my joy if I allowed it. If I nursed a grudge, if I resented their success, I could have thought to myself, who do they think they are? The cheek of them to go and publish a book. How dare they? In situations like that, and again, I'm kind of embarrassed. I just, I just told you my story. You don't have to tell your stories, you know. But, but there's times when it's like maybe people in your same, they grew up in the same estate as you. They went to the same college as you. They're in the same field as you. But they're just doing a little bit better. <laughs> in situations like that, it really is, um, you heard the phrase double or nothing? Um, it's kind of like that. I could either double my joy and celebrate with them that what God's doing in their life and getting them book deals and all that, or I could have no joy. I could be doubly joyful, or I could be no joy. Here's how Rick Warren defines envy. Envy, he says, is resenting God's goodness to others and ignoring God's goodness to me. So what about you? Uh, who's the person or group of people that you're most likely to be tempted towards envy? Remember, potter against potter, blacksmith against blacksmith. Um, is it the friends of yours that are just coupling up and finding true love while you remain single? Um, is it the person from your graduating class who is just like flying in their career path while you're still in kind of a job that you got that was, you thought was just going to be a short-term thing before you launched onto your career as well? Um, is it the couple that finds it easy, easy to, to conceive over and over again while you're trying desperately and praying so hard to have a baby of your own? Uh, are you a mom who spends time on, like, those blogs, those mommy blogs, in hopes of getting inspired, but instead you just see these moms that have their lives together so well and everything's, like, color-coordinated and perfect, and you look at your life and it's just not the same? Uh, do you scroll through social media with just a growing sense of dissatisfaction, like finding it hard to be happy for people. Um, and you'd never say this out loud, but sometimes you kind of like wish other people would ha be harmed <laughs> so that their lives wouldn't be this like constantly smiling newsfeed of holidays and selfies and delicious meals. Maybe we struggle with chronic illness, either of the body or of the mind. And it could be a challenge to look upon like the able-bodied, pain-free lives of others 
or families that seem untouched by heartache or sorrow and not feel a touch of covetousness or jealousy or envy. Uh, Dorothy Sayers uh, wrote an essay on the seven deadly sins, and she says this, if greed is the sin of the haves against the have-nots, envy is the sin of the have-nots against the haves. So again, like I said earlier, every temptation towards envy, us have-nots against those haves, it really is, just think of this phrase, it's double or nothing. I could be thankful for what God's doing in their life, and I can enter into that joy, or I could have nothing. You could be envious, or you could be happy. You can't be both. Or even when things are going well for you, there still is that chance. I remember after Father Ted Crilly wins the prestigious Golden Cleric Award, <laughs> his housekeeper, Mrs. Doyle, tells him, I always thought you were one of the best priests in all the country. And he says, one of the best or the best? After thinking about it, she says, well, I'd say you're the second best priest of all of Ireland. And instantly his face turns into an angry scowl. And then he resolves to quit the priesthood and he storms out of the house. So I'm going to quote two ancient writers, one pagan and one Christian. Uh, the pagan Antisthenes says this, As iron is eaten by rust, so are the envious consumed by envy. And then the next slide is the Christian, John Chrysostom, who says, As moth gnaws a garment, so doth envy consume a man. So this is just observable. You don't even need to have the Spirit of God in you to observe this in ourselves or others. However, we come to our final section, the last few moments. Envy denied. So lots of people can observe that this is bad, that it eats us from the inside out. I believe Christian, Spirit-filled follower of Jesus, we have a resource that is deeper and stronger, and I'll say better, than just the observational powers of our neighbors. We all agree this is a problem, but here's how envy can be denied. We read it out earlier on. We, we tried to anyway. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And we'll get it better next week. Um, so where is the grace that abounds to get us out of this soul-destroying sin of envy, the consuming slow death of envy? Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Well, how so? Or maybe to switch it around, how can I release my grip on this sin? It certainly doesn't mean that we ignore the successful people around us. Okay, well, if I look at successful people, then I get envious, so I know what I'll do. I'll just keep my eyes straight ahead. Well, I, don't, I think that other people's victories can be inspirational, and we should learn from them. Like, to learn from the positive traits of those that have gone before us, or even walking alongside us, that's a virtue, not a vice. The successful people that I know, like, they spur me on to, to work and to try harder to keep going, to not quit in what God's called me to. The book of Hebrews addresses this twice. It says, don't be sluggish, 
but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So we should have role models. Goes on to say, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. So I always want to be learning from people who are like doing better at things than I am. So one of the ways for us to deny envy is to maybe like use that impulse for what it's meant for. I believe like nearly every one of these vices is simply a virtue twisted. It's a disordered affection. So we see something admirable in somebody else and sin wants us to hate that person for us or discard them in our minds. But I believe a virtue can say, I see that and I want that. What steps can I take towards implementing those practices into my own life? We see admirable qualities and we work backwards to say, what are the patterns, what are the choices that you've made that have brought you to this? But some blessings are entirely outside of our control. You know, some of them, it's like, oh, well, how did you fit into those jeans? Well, I eat less pies. <laughs> okay, great, I can do that. Um, there's simple things, but then there's more complex things. Some blessings in the lives of others are, like, outside of our control. And for those situations, we lean into the sovereignty of God. We just acknowledge, like, God is God and we are not God's in charge of what we have, and God's in charge of what we don't have. And Corinthians says that he's not going to allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. And also, I know this. Maybe I can get an amen if you know this too. God has a long track record of turning even our deepest sorrow or pain into our greatest strength in years to come. This is something the Apostle Paul uh, wrote about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says that, you know, God comforted me in my afflictions so that I was able to comfort others in theirs. So rather than him wishing that he was someone different or had an easier life, he says, in the midst of this, I've learned things about the comfort and the strength of God, and now he's using me as a comforting, strengthening influence in the lives of others. So we can lean into the sovereignty of God. Also, we can cultivate gratitude for what we have. Um, Korea Calabras says this, Behind our envy is a soul convinced that God is holding out on us. I want to say God is not holding out on you. And he's wise, and he's kind, and even that thing is under God's sovereign hand. And so, we want to consciously cultivate gratitude for the blessings that we do have. Remember, envy is counting someone else's blessings instead of yours. Gratitude is saying, I'm going to one by one, systematically, with an open heart, and open eyes, and open mind, thank the Lord for what he's done in my life thus far. And then finally, for every envious heart in this room, mine and yours, uh, we need to look beyond even the blessings of others, beyond even our own blessings, but we look to the cross of Christ. 
because there we'll find grace that will teach us to deny the ungodly sin of envy. You see, envy convinces us that we deserve more than we have. The gospel says that we have so much more than we deserve. The gospel says that we deserve death and shame and hell and judgment for sins. But Jesus was treated like we deserve, so now we can be treated as he deserves. That upon his cross, Jesus took that shame. And for the believer, I can say that our disgrace is removed in Christ. We have his love and his affection. He looks on us not as like marred by our insecurities or envy. He's not comparing us to the person next to us, but in Christ, you're completely accepted, honored, beloved, welcomed, and brought into his family. We sang it earlier, look to Christ who condescended. He took on flesh to ransom us. That was part of his plan to get you. He willingly gave it all up so that we could belong to him. I'm going to close with Titus 3.3. We'll have a time of response. It says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So you hear that? The gospel is good news for envious people. Sin's curse has lost its grip on you who are in the grip of Christ. And so, are you in his grip? Have you given your heart and your life and yourself to him? Would you say, you take my sin and I receive your righteousness? The empty hands of faith. We offer ourselves to him and he gives us all of who he is. You're invited to believe that. For the rest of you who know the Lord Jesus, and maybe this is hating a nerve, well, you have a chance to respond. Uh, we have our prayer team activated. It's back on again. There's going to be people in the back. I believe George and Dawn are going to be in the back. I'll be there as well. If you want somebody to, to pray with you, to listen, to pray, to go to God with you or on your behalf, that's taking place during these final songs. Is it there? And what a treat. We also have communion. So there we have it, the, the reminder that we, though we think we deserve more, we actually deserve less, but God in his grace has given us his very self. All right. Lord, I pray that um, 
in whatever time zone it feels like I'm in right now. Um, we're just so thankful that, um, that you're here in our midst, Lord. We're thankful that um, you give the power to loosen the grip of envy. And I pray, God, that you would not just help us to be slightly more positive or to have better vibes, but Lord, would you just change us from the inside out? Lord, there's people, I believe, in this room, Lord, whose, whose bones are rotting. And would you set free, Lord? Um, I ask that you would do great things, starting now and in this coming series. Thank you, Lord, that we have all of Christ for all of life, and now we're inviting Christ into those dark parts of our lives where the vices have hidden. But Lord, we welcome you. Shine your light in the dark places. In the name of Jesus, amen.